Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm in London with my RPP colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Martin Collier. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us all the way from uh, Cleveland, Ohio, home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, is writer and Professor Kimberly Mack. Hi, Kim. Hi. Kim is joining us for this episode to discuss the history, the phenomenon of black rock, and specifically her book about Living Colors, second album, Time's Up. We'll hear clips from the week's new audio interview, which happens to be with Living Colors leader and guitar player Vernon Reed from 1989. And actually, 88. And we'll round up some of the pieces we've added recently to the world's largest archive of music journalism. Kim, let's start with an extraordinary piece that you wrote in 2019 and which we're featuring with your blessing on the RBP homepage this week. It's called Johnny Rotten, My Mom and Me. And it describes very movingly your late mother's love of everything from Janis Joplin and Neil Young to Cheap Trick and even the Boomtown Rats. I'll just read one sentence. Um, <clears throat> she flaunted her love of rock music, playing her Sex Pistols, Boomtown Rats and Thin Lizzy records at top volume on Sunday afternoons just before her mother and the other black church ladies returned from holy services. I love that detail. And you also say that listening to like the Sex Pistols was a way of drowning out her pain. I would soon do the same, blasting music of all kinds to escape the epic fights between my mother and grandmother. It's a very, very personal piece, but, you know, the role of these white rock acts in it is 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 quite an extraordinary thing to to read about. Do you want to tell us a bit about the role that white rock played in your childhood in this in this slightly unlikely way? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and you know, my mom, as as you mentioned, was really into rock music, and she also was a voracious reader. So she read all kinds of things, but she loved reading rock magazines. And she would have them around the house. You had Rolling Stone and Cream and Trouser Press and Relics. And I picked them up and read them too. So, you know, she influenced my musical listening, but also what I was reading. And it was strange for me. I mean, I, I loved the music so much, but based on what I read, what I saw in interviews, what I heard on the radio... I really got the message that rock was white and I felt like an interloper. And my mom didn't have these issues. And I think some of that was generational. You know, she was born in 46. She, like me, was somebody who, you know, as a young person kind of wanted to be a grown up. So she was really interested in 50s music and, you know, was there during the birth of rock and roll and was paying attention as a kid. And so I don't, I think she just stuck around and didn't see anything controversial about it, which there is nothing controversial about it. But I happened to come along as a child in the 70s when by that point, rock had become strangely marked as white. And so I was a little bit confused. And um, I talk in the book about going to rock concerts early on with my mom. My mom took me to my first show, which was Cheap Trick at Radio City Music Hall in 1980. You know, I had such a great time, but I was very, very conscious of being 
the only black, like my mom yeah, and I, yeah. I just was looking around and I just didn't see any other black people. And it did matter to me. You know, I was, I was a kid and I just felt very self-conscious. So, so it was, it was interesting. I mean, I love the music, but I, I also had a, a, a sort of a distance from it in some ways and some alienation as well. Was it a kind of secret thing for you? Did you share it with your peers or your friends? That's a great question. So I, so my, my upbringing was, was a bit strange in the sense that I was growing up in a housing project in Brooklyn, actually one that you may have heard about only because of Jay-Z, because Jay-Z yeah. grew up in the Marseille housing projects and he's, you know, kind of proudly talked about that. But for me, when I was growing up, it was actually a, a, a side of shame because I was going to a private school. I was bussed out of my neighborhood and going to a private school in Brooklyn Heights, which is kind of Tony. And um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so for me, it was, you know, just this really kind of painful situation where I didn't quite feel like I fit anywhere. You know, I didn't quite yeah. feel like I fit at home in my community. I didn't totally fit at school because of my race and class. And then I also felt distance from this music that at the same time made me feel really good. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of complicated things going on, but in terms of your yeah. question, at school, you know, it was mostly white kids that I went to school with. There were, there were some kids of color too, but very, very few. But I was actually way ahead. You know, someone actually asked me this the other day, what was it like with my friends? But I, you know, because of the way I was raised with the music just so central to our lives and becoming a really young collector and having opinions at a really young age, I was yeah. actually ahead of my friends. My, you know, I introduced my friends to Blondie. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating to to hear you speak about all that. I mean, you know, if we sort of turn this the other way around, I mean, I think, say, speaking, you know, rather presumptuously for my colleagues, but, you know, we we were going to see a lot of black artists, you know, in, in London and elsewhere in the 70s and 80s. And sometimes, you know, one would be the only white face in in, <laughs> yeah. in, in, in the venue. So it's just mm-hmm. perhaps a similar thing, but but less maybe less unusual because I mean, lots of lots of our friends were were going to you know I went to see Rufus in 1975 at mm. the New Victoria, and I would say it was probably. I mean, that was a multi-ethnic band for a start, but I would say probably half the audience was white and half was black. It was, mm-hmm. it was really lovely. But so, I, yeah, I love that in that fantastic essay for long reads that, that I mentioned earlier, you, you talk about listening to Cheap Tricks, Oh Caroline, and imagining it was someone being sung to you. I, I, mm-hmm. I thought that was really sweet. Yeah. The feature on the homepage is is obviously going to kind of address this theme. And there's this great piece that David Toop wrote for The Face in July 1990. And the stand first of it just said, there is nothing novel about white versions of black music, but should the idea of black rock be so strange in 1990? And that was the, the question that the piece mm-hmm. asked. Mm-hmm. And so I would sort of, I guess I could put that question to you now. Why did it seem strange in 1990 that a band like Living Colour would be, you know, making rock music, even quite metallic rock music. Yeah. So this all has to do with, you know, sort of historical 
you know, ways in which genres, you know, in the United States anyway, came about. And, you know, I think frequently people believe that the genres were kind of these set things that were based on musical composition and, you know, and then you kind of go out and see what music fits that. And then it all kind of comes together perfectly, but actually genres are always marketing categories. And, you know, it started with the race labels and hillbilly labels and, you know, music that might sound sonically the same, more or less, were segregated, you know, because of race and marketing. And, you know, this happened in the early 20th century, but we had a reverberation of that in the 1960s, late 1960s into the early 1970s, where, you know, all of a sudden it became that, you know, this music that the origins are, you know, there's no question, black became seen as white. And so even if you're thinking about something like funk, you know, the divide between funk and rock, right? Similarly to the divide between R&B, rhythm and blues, and rock and roll, you know, there's no real sonic difference. And there's not a sonic difference between funk and rock. But in the 70s, if you were black, you were kind of slotted into this funk, mm-hmm. you know, side, even if you had rock guitar. And if you were white, and you sounded similar, then you were, of course, rock. And of course, that matters. You know, these these categories are are fictional, but they have real world consequences. And you know, if if you're not getting played on the radio, mainstream rock radio, if you're not, you know, having access to that kind of you know, audience, then, you know, it hurts your pocketbook. It's very interesting. Vernon Reeves will um, talk about it more later, but um, he talks in this interview about how when he was a kid, you could be listening to the radio as a white guy or white girl, and you'd be listening to things like Supremes. Yeah. And that, that, that radio became effectively segregated. Totally. Which I, I put down to the development of, of, of FM radio. FM radio mm-hmm. allowed for a plethora of stations in a way that wasn't allowed before. So by the time you, you reach the mid-70s, you either listen to white music or you listen to black music. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. You know, and I think that fiction, you know, of rock being white, just it just, it was so, that, that narrative was so yeah. powerful and so successful that I think that it's not just white folks who began to believe that rock was white. I think black folks also believe that rock was white. And, you know, and, and of course, Vernon has talked many times about this, but living color. And I talk about in the introduction to the book, living color had a lot of resistance on, on many different fronts. Mm -hmm. And then they also had resistance when they became successful, you know, because then they were (laughs) accused of selling out. So it was a thing back then. Um, (laughs) I don't think I'd really appreciated how, how much pressure they had in England. I, we all knew who Living Colour were. Well, we didn't think it was nearly as controversial as it seems to have been in the States. Yeah. I mean, even the phrase black rock, right? Like, I mean, David Toot picks up on this in that piece that you mentioned, Barney. He writes, having to say black rock as if yeah. the idea was a proposition rather than an accepted historical truth is indicative of the restricted flexibility of rock. And I think, yeah. it, you know, it is, it is a kind of weird thing to say black rock when, you know, as you said, Kimberly, it's like that's it's the truth is there. Like it comes from black people, rock and roll. Yeah, and Vernon very much says that in the audio interview that that we'll talk Mm. about a little bit later. I would just to just to kind of go back to yeah, the the beginning, if you like. I mean, you could you could we could we could go back to Little Richard and Chuck Berry, 
both deadly and others and say you know that that is the inception of of, of rock right there but in the context of the phrase as problematic as it is i guess black rock starts with i mean most notably and obviously Jimi hendrix also to some degree arthur lee of love and maybe even the chambers brothers but one of the things just preparing for this that was interesting to me and i'm sure mark will have something to say about this was that when jimmy came to london and just sort of set the town on fire there was still so, you know it there was still a, like what here's this black american guy coming to london and just kind of pulverizing the, the scene and this is the sort of the most intense electric rock and roll we've we've ever heard and it's a black guy and what what does that mean? I mean, Mark, what, just well, briefly, what's your thoughts on that? Well, well, I mean, first of all, the media treatment of him outside of the music press yeah. was was disgusting. It was all about the wild man of the t- yes. phrases like the wild but, man of Borneo and things yeah, like that. Exactly. Were sort of where we used in relation to him. I, I think the one thing is, is that he was coming to a scene where a lot of white guys were trying to play black music, effectively the blues boom, the fag end of the blues boom. So. He was absolutely immediately accepted by the English audiences on an extraordinary scale. Conversely, when it, going back to America, he became totally accepted by white audiences, really struggled with black audiences. He notoriously played Affair in Harlem in, I think, 69, and was pretty much booed off the stage. But that's the one thing is that black musicians loved him. I mean, I've still, you know, there's that marvellous Valerie Wilmer photograph of Archie Shep in his loft and, you know, the Lower East Side. And there's a huge poster of Jimmy on the wall. This is Archie Shep, P-Funk, all those guys just adored Jimi Hendrix, you know. But the the black audience were very resistant. Even though I I might listen to him all the time, and he's absolutely absolutely my favourite artist, I think. And it's so black, you know, right down to the Curtis Mayfield rhythm guitar parts he'd be playing, you know. It's it's so black. But with this massive... Fabulous psychedelic sort of dollop on top. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your mom listened to Jimi Hendrix. I think you you do to, as well as like Janis Joplin and others. But she, you certainly would have. Would you, you did you hear Hendrix as a little girl? Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting because she would talk about. I, I remember at some point saying to her, well, many times saying, okay, enough about the sixties because she just talked about the sixties all the time. In the sixties, <laughs> this happened. In the sixties, that happened. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, just very interested in you know, the seventies when I was a kid and that was what was my reality. But yeah, no, she played Hendrix and she talked about Hendrix even more than she played him. And she kind of worshiped him. Right. But, you know, one of the things that was interesting is that she also talked about Arthur Lee a lot. She didn't play a lot of love, but she did talk about Arthur Lee. And I remember her really having feelings about how he, he kind of didn't get the career and the credit that he deserved. And, Mm. And I think she thought that was racialized, but she never talked about it in those terms. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I, that was a key part of this for me and that we didn't really have these conversations. I, she, we didn't talk about the black origins of rock. She, we, you know, she loved Thin Lizzy and she loved Phil Lennon a lot. And, but again, (laughs) we didn't, we didn't really talk about this music comes from this and this and this. Perhaps if we had had some of those conversations, it might have made it a little easier, but we didn't really have those conversations. I mean, it's fascinating. I, 
again, as part of my preparation, I just wrote down every sort of act that I could think of, odds I could think of that you could you could sort of say, you know, was a sort of purveyor of kind of black rock as an art form. And it and the list went on and on and on. I'm not going to read it all out now, but it is everything. It's everything from it's Tina Turner, it's mm-hmm. Prince, it's the Bus Boys. It's the band Death from Detroit in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It's Funkadelic, you know, with incredible Eddie Hazel playing. It's the Isley Brothers. It's Sly the Family Stone. It's Roachford. Yeah. It's Bad Brains. It's Fishbone. Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's Electric Miles. It's a very, it's actually a longer list than you, than you might even think. In a way, that, that sort of list, it, it culminates, one might almost say, with, with Living Colour. When Living Colour signed to Epic, and it had a hit with Cult of Personality, it really kind of put this subject in the foreground, I think. Mm-hmm. So, Kim, tell us about your first awareness or exposure to, to Living Colour and then how this, how this book you know, came about. Yeah, so Living Color. So I, I, so I discovered them in, you know, at, at Vivid, uh, and I used to watch. There's a show that was on in the United States called Showtime at the Apollo. I don't know if it ever made it over there, but yeah. But anyway, I used to watch it with my mom and um, I was in college at this point and I would come home. I I didn't stray too far away from from home. (laughs) I went to NYU, so I was pretty close to to Brooklyn. And I would come home and watch it with her sometimes. And I remember seeing Living Color perform on Showtime at the Apollo for the Vivid album. And I do remember being a little bit, uh, what's the word? salty because I wanted them to do cult of personality. They didn't do cult of personality. <laughs> and I, in my mind, it was because they were not sure how the predominantly black crowd would react. So I was kind of irritated at that, but, um, but I liked them and I, and I got the record and I liked the record, but times up for me was just uh, next level. Actually. Well, I love the record obviously, cause I wrote a book about it, but <laughs> hearing times up, the the sing the, the first song on the mm-hmm. record the track first track was pretty revelatory for me and it was the it was the anger you know at that point i was not really into hardcore or punk rock or any of that that would come later you know aside from what i heard growing up with my mom i personally was not really into that i was into harder rock and also rock that wasn't so hard but not like that edgy kind of angry hardcore. And hearing that song was my introduction to it, you know, and growing up the way I did with just a lot of uh, kind of violence in my home and kind of internalizing that Mm. and not really having, you know, and, and I was using the music to release some of that pressure, but I still hadn't really found my voice and so hearing that song, hearing Time's Up just knocked me on my ass. I thought it was amazing. Mm-hmm. I thought the anger was amazing. I thought the sounds were amazing. And then I got to see them live. And that was it. I was done. Yeah. <laughs> I saw them live at the Academy, 1990. And I was, that was it. That song, that title track, very much was 
a homage to to bad mm-hmm. brains, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to read out this great quote from Fishbone's Angelo Moore. He said, the bad brains would go from punk rock straight into reggae. I thought, these white boys are bad. This shit sounds crazy. And I found out they were black. And, and I remember getting... <laughs> and Fishbone, of course, are one of the, you know, in a sense, one of the, they, they were very diverse, of course, but they fall into this subject. I remember getting the first Bad Brains cassette and being just utterly blown away, you know, by Sailing On. I think you mentioned that track, Sailing On, mm-hmm. and Band mm-hmm. in DC. And just, it really did, but in some ways, blew me away more than Living Colour when Living Colour first hit. It was just the idea that these, like, dreadlocked guys from DC were playing this ferocious, hardcore punk. And I did see Bad Brains in LA in, back in 82, I think. And they were just, I mean, as intense as anything I've ever seen. <laughs> Bad Brains. I mean, they were phenomenal, weren't they? I love the bit in the book. Kimberly, where you write about moshing, getting dragged into a mosh pit for yeah. the first yes. time. Like a, a guy wearing a black flag t-shirt, like essentially pushes you into the mosh pit and you kind of, you're just covered yeah. by, by the, the mass of it. And then, but I mean, obviously that didn't put you off then. No, no, it didn't. I mean, I, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was getting into, but yeah, no, it didn't put me off. And then of course this led into the nineties when I was, you know, coming of age in my twenties and stuff. And every show, <laughs> there was a mosh pit, you know. And so I had learned my lesson by then, and I knew how to stand back a ways uh, from the front of the stage. But, but no, it was really, it was extremely exciting, and and that was the first of many, many times I went to see Living Color live. Because again, I, I, I love their music on record, but as the folks who have seen them live, I mean, they're an incredible live band. Should we listen to the week's new audio interview, Mark? Would you just tell us a bit about it? Yeah, well, sure. It's, it's, it's Mark Sinker, who's absolutely the right person to interview Vernon Reed, because Mark Sinker kind of knows about all ends of the stuff. It talks about being, this is 1988, so literally the first album's only just, just come out, signed to Epic, he talks about some of his other projects, about producing other acts, people he'd like to produce. And let's listen to the first clip, talking about sort of the models, you know, the, the sort of stuff that he was aware of that led him to where he was at this point. I'd hasten to say that there was never a golden age no, no. Of, of racial, <laughs> you, know, of, you know, I mean... There have been brief respites. Yeah. There have been artists that have come along that united people, you know, like Sly Stone. I mean, Sly Stone. I mean, people that I think are models for me, like Sly Stone and Santana, because they brought their own ethnicity to rock and roll. And it was accepted as rock and roll, you know, um, by whites and blacks. And they had a, a mixed, you know, a mixed audience, and I feel like that's you know what I want. What I would like to see. I love yeah. that you can hear you can hear cult of personality blast muffled <laughs> muffled in the background. Like it, it sounds like. Sounds like somebody's they're sound checking, but they can't be because no, it, he's been, been, yeah. no, he's been probably in the studio. Yeah, I, 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 I'd say it'd be that because yeah. the door the door opens every now and again. It comes blasting <laughs> through, <laughs> and, then, and, then, and the door closes. Um, he talks a lot about the current state of black music in America, 
and gets onto it. In fact, we'll listen to the next clip about the segregation of radio and the way in which R&B is becoming kind of more cliched in a sort of sense in order to fit in with its radio audience, whilst White Rock is doing the same for its radio audience. Let's have a listen to this next clip. Rock and roll is first one. It's everybody's music, hmm. and I mean, historically, it's you know, I mean, it's his in its history, in its inception, it's black. And I feel it's like because of that, it's like my birthright, hmm. you know. Um, and um, being a black person, you know, in America, and first of all, you need sometimes. When I start, when you want to go back and forth talk, I think, you know, the whole racial thing is just totally mad. It really is sick. It really is sick that we, that we trip, you know, and that, you know, people die, have to die because their skin color is different. If you really stop and think about it, if you could just could be, if, if you can be objective about it, it's sick. You know, it really is. And the fact that the industry, you know, the fact that you can pick up a magazine and see charts openly segregated, I mean, you know, and not even think. If we were to go somewhere in a restaurant and see a black restaurant and a white restaurant in New York, we would, it would, you know, it would be shocking. It would be like, what, what is this? It's crazy. But, you know, we pick a billboard every week to see what's happening, and we don't trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's absolutely right. It's sort of like it's so weird. It's like hiding in plain sight, isn't it? Yeah. And you kind of grow up with this, and you don't even. Well, I can only speak for myself. You sort of almost don't question it. And when you hear someone like Vernon putting it like that, it's like, yeah, it's sick. Yeah, I mean, you know, he he talks actually really interesting about the life and death of disco. That disco was a black music which became whitened by the, the Bee Gees specifically. And that's the point where disco sort of loses its beauty in some sort of ways, even however much one may like the Bee Gees or, or otherwise. Is, uh, he, he talks about the importance of Prince, and I guess that's about seeing a black guy playing out there lead guitar, which you hadn't seen since Jimi Hendrix, and, you, and before that, the blues, and B.B. King and so on. Talks about his early struggles, joining Ronald Shannon Jackson's Decoding Society, playing with Defunct as a sort of like part-time guitar player. He talks about the negative energy in drugs and racism, how all these things combine. So someone like Charlie Parker being a junkie is as much consequence of who, where, who he is and where he is as anything else. He talks about the importance of Ornette Coleman, which is kind of interesting. I know my word processor turned it to Ornate Coleman, which is not exactly <laughs> Uh, and the cliched perceptions of black, of black people is, is how white people bring, like the idea that they can all dance, they, they all that sort of mm. stuff. And uh, it's it's he's such an articulate and interesting yeah. man. It's it's a really good interview. Yeah, he's so great. I mean, it is interesting. I do think the first time I heard about, I don't know any any black person who was like into, I don't know something like Rush, right? Which <laughs> Vernon was. It is, probably. <laughs> I did think, really? And the, and I, I suppose I sort of thought, you know, what on earth could you get out of Rush when, when you sort of, when you'd have kind of grown up on James Brown? Why would you listen to Rush? But that mm. is, 
it's quite a racist thing to even think. So I'm just, I'm like fessing up. It's, I suppose it's kind of like something like Rush is sort of so unfunky and so white. Why would you listen to it? Because I was so into black music and I couldn't think why you would, why you would want to listen to Rush. Well, we all hated Rush. (laughs) (laughs) But but Vernon didn't. And and for all we know, Kim didn't either. (laughs) Well, and the whole band is into Rush. You know, there's a moment in the book where they talk about being invited to hear the, see Rush live. They got invited and they were all like, okay, we're just going to stop early and we're just going to all go see Rush. They were so excited about it. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Kim, let's get let's get back to living color. Tell us about when mm. when when did you start thinking about? I guess did you just like submit this album mm. as as a subject to thirty three and a third? Tell us about uh, how it came about. Yeah, so I when choosing between Vivid and Times Up, I mean for me it was always going to be Times Up, but I don't think that you can really talk about Times Up without talking about Vivid. So I do lead up to how they got to the second record, you know, so a lot of the introduction is about, you know, the complications and, and the poli- the racial politics around being this all black rock band. And, you know, and, and also there's not a biography of the band. So the first chapter is all about kind of how they got to yeah. vivid, but time's up for me. And as I was saying before, I actually like that record more. I think it's a better record. I think it's, 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 you know, Vivid was kind of a really straight ahead hard rock album that I think was legible to kind of a mainstream audience. And I think Time's Up actually is, is a little bit different, a little more experimental, a little bolder. And I think in some ways the band got punished for some of that, which maybe we could talk more about that later. But, but so I knew it was going to be Time's Up and I actually submitted to the 33 and the third series the first time in 2014. And I was fortunate enough to interview Vernon and Corey, uh, short, short interviews. It's really interesting to contrast the interviews for that versus the interviews for the second round, but, um, short interviews for the proposal and I submitted it and it was not accepted. And I was still in grad school at the time. And, um, the 33 and the third series, they always have an open call. In fact, they just opened up for another call just a few days ago. And, you know, they get like 400 application, you know, 400 proposals and take something like 15 books. So the odds aren't great, but I was disappointed and I thought the proposal was sound. And, and actually Vernon was disappointed because he's, you know, he is somebody who, you know, is not just a reader, but he's a cultural critic and is mm-hmm. right. You know, he wrote for the village voice, you know, he cares about these things. Yeah. And so anyway, I asked him if I wanted to try again down the line, would you be willing to talk to me then? He said, absolutely. So in 2020, I tried again and that time it worked. And, and actually, to be fair, the um, proposal wasn't very different. You know, I tweaked it. It just was time. <laughs> so anyway, so that happened and, um, and it worked out. But, but yeah, I was always really clear that it would be Time's Up because I just, I actually just think it's a better album and I think it's a really exciting album. And I think all of the things, and I guess I'll just say this quickly, all of the things that white rock bands are celebrated for, and I'm going to throw a name out like Blondie. And I love Blondie. Blondie is one of my favorite bands ever, but you know, they were, they were always celebrated for all of their kind of genre crossing. And I think Living Color were kind of punished for that. 
with this record. It is a very diverse record, isn't it? It's a very, very mm-hmm. diverse record. On revisiting it, uh, I had forgotten mm-hmm. just... Uh, I mean, I know Ed Stasium, the, the producer kind of described it as the black Sergeant Pepper, which I'm not sure that's quite right, but, but the diversity <laughs> certainly is, mm-hmm. is comparable. There's some very powerful stuff going on there, very powerful riffs. And I mean, it's, yeah, I, it was a, a joy to rediscover it, I think. There's a bit that where you mention that Vivid got reviewed, uh, Armand White excoriated Living Colour for following, quote, the strictest, whitest ideas of what rock music should be and participating in, quote, the imitation of white rock idioms. And that really struck me because... I don't know even, is that, does that make sense as a thing to say? Like, <laughs> no. 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 Do you think they it reacted so against the that with, no. with the second album? Do you think they reacted against that? Because we're talking about the diversity of it. What, yeah, what no, do you, th- you know, I don't think so. I, I mean, you know, that, that review is kind of infamous and, you know, and I know that it, 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 Vernon wasn't happy with that review, but Armin White is also a little bit of a, um, um, he's known for being a contrarian. I'll just put it in that way. Right. So, so I don't know. I don't think they were reacting against that. I think they were, as Muzz said to me, and that's in the book, I think they were trying to expand um, mm. the idea of what rock is and expand it. You know, they weren't trying to, you know, dilute it or have a fusion or anything like that. This is totally what Muzz said, but they were trying to expand the ideas around what rock is. And it's interesting because as I was saying before about a band like Blondie or David Bowie or so many other white rock artists who, uh, the police who were able to do their version of reggae forever without anybody having any issues whatsoever. Um, And I love the police again, also very much, but I think they were just very, very conscious of all of the ways in which they were going to be, watched for uh, signs of inauthenticity or illegitimacy as rock yeah, yeah. because they were black, you know? So I think they were just very, very aware of that at all times. Mm. And so they were very consciously thinking about what they were doing as they were being, you know, a rock act and trying to expand the idea of what rock is. Yeah. So, yeah. Out of interest, when they played the Showtime at the Apollo, how did they go down to a black audience? Yeah, they so based on just the eye test, yeah. it, it seemed like certainly by the time we got to Time's Up, because they went back on again right. after Time's Up and they did Pride. And there's a great clip, you know, on YouTube that you can see of them doing Pride. And, you know, the audience seemed to be pretty into it. Not right. not not on the level of some of the hip hop artists or some of the more sort of straight ahead R and B artists that came through at that time. Because again, sure. I would watch it a lot. I watched it a lot. I just love the show, particularly the amateur hour part. <laughs> <laughs> but, but people were, I think, giving them their due, you know, as right. being a, a talented band, and there was support in the room. I don't think it was, you know, yeah, at that same, quite that same level sure. of enthusiasm. But I think people. People were supportive. Interesting. Yeah. All right, Paulo. Once again, we got Vernon Reed, Corey Glover, Mel Skillings, William Calhoun. We got Living Color doing it. So Jasper asked you about Armand White. I wanted to ask you about a more supportive 
critic, um, <clears throat> the guy that Vernon, you know, co-formed the uh, BlackRock coalition with, and that's Greg Tate, who I know you interviewed for this book, and there's great quotes and insights from the late Greg Tate. And can you tell us about about Greg, who's a bit, you know, who, who was already a very respected and beloved figure before his untimely death in 2021, but is but is sort of almost even more now kind of cherished and and loved and revered. Tell us about Greg Tate. Yeah, Greg is just a really important figure, a uh, really important figure as somebody who one of the earliest writers of hip hop about hip hop. Mm hmm. In the United States, somebody who wrote about rock, who wrote about all different kinds of genres of music. So he was also somebody who I eventually learned about and was so happy that he existed because it, yeah. it, it gave me a sense that I could write about rock. And then he was an intellectual. I mean, he was one of the people who really coined not the uh, term post-soul, but he was talking about that post-civil rights generation, you know, Black, largely middle-class artists who were, you know, troubling Blackness and thinking through different ways of approaching Black art and uh, being a Black intellectual. And he was talking about this before it entered the academy. So he was this intellectual as well as this, as being just this incredible, artistic, beautiful writer. Yeah, yeah. But he was also an amazing human. You know, he was he was actually my first writing mentor. You know, he was the person who yeah. I um, worked with when I when I decided I'm just going to finally I'm just going to try it. I'm going to do it. I, I wanted to write about rock music since I was 16. I said to myself, I want to do this. But I, it took me a long time to actually do it. You know, I was 32 and he was the person who I showed my earliest, most embarrassing uh, work to, and he was supportive and wonderful. So yeah, an amazing writer, amazing intellectual, and also just a really great mentor to other young writers. Yeah, he was incredible. Well, none of that, none of that surprising to hear. And thanks for sharing your 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 thoughts on on Greg and your memories of Greg. I mean, the as, the, the Black Rock Coalition was actually formed, I think, almost three years before Living Color was signed by Epic. Right? What would you yeah, say? Can you just tell us a little bit about the Black Rock Coalition and and its legacy? Because it's how how old is it now? I can't do my maths. It's nearly forty years old, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So so just give us a little insight into into the BRC. Yeah. So, I mean, it was an organization um, that Vernon Reed, Greg Tate and Condé Mason put together. And it was it, you know, it was really meant to be a space where artists, black musicians and other people interested in, in music could come together and advocate for each other to play and make a make a living, hopefully, mm -hmm. or at least make some money playing music within the full constellation of black music, which, you know, as we've been discussing, has been, you know, erroneously kind of, can't think of the word, but uh, limited, right? It has yeah, there's yeah, been a limited yeah. idea of what black music is. And so the idea there was to have a place where people could, you know, advocate for black folks to play all kinds of music within right. the black experience, including rock music. And there were bands that came through there that were affiliated with the Black Rock Coalition, of course, Living Color being probably the most well-known, but um, all kinds of different bands were at different times members, um, you know, 24-7 Spies, I&I, yeah. other bands who were signed. And then there were some Black Rock Coalition bands who were not signed, who 
uh, probably should have been signed. And, yeah. you know, and I talk about this in the book, this is something that was kind of a, a lot of folks lamented that, uh, and this is also the thing I was saying earlier, how Living Color really dealt with a lot of things um, and their success created a little bit of a backlash too, even within the BRC because uh, their band, you know, really yeah, blew yeah. up and, and, and Living Color are truly a groundbreaking band in that they are the most commercially successful all black rock band since Jimi Hendrix's band of gypsies. And, and there's been no one since who's been that. And yeah, yeah. there hasn't, there wasn't this flood of signings, you know, yeah. post living color. There were some BRC bands who were signed, but there wasn't that flood. Is the resistance because the record labels just don't know how to sell black rock bands. Is it really? Yeah, I think that was that? some of it. I think that yeah. was some of it. And even some of the folks who were signed, I mean, they felt like they were signed and then ignored. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, Certainly in the old model, you know, it was not enough to – any model, it's not enough just to be signed. But this idea that if you don't have any marketing push or promotion behind you, you're not going to do much. So, sure. you know, so either bands were signed that came out of yeah. the BRC, a few, a handful, and then were kind of left to, you know, languishing. Mm-hmm. Or they were just not signed. Because, right. yeah, there was a yeah. failure of imagination around how do we – how do we market this? Because yeah. still it was really, you know – ridiculously so controversial and people and to the and by the way still you know yes you know yeah. rock music is still very much seen as white even right now i don't think a whole lot has yeah. changed i mean sure. funny enough the name of our website has kind of slightly come back to bite us in this respect because we didn't been in England, actually, kind of, we we didn't really know that this was the, the, the term rock was seen as a white thing by American audiences. It was only when we were going to conferences in America, and we'd have like black academics sort of looking at us very kind of skeptically. Right. It was only then that I really learned that rock meant white. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. for the next time page, we're just we're going to rename the site Black Rocks Pages for at least <laughs> a week. Um, I just briefly want to mention, so, so I know one of the bands that came out of that scene was Faith, female-fronted band, mm-hmm. and, it, and it made mm-hmm. me aware that obviously we were talking about a lot of men in this mm-hmm. episode. And, mm-hmm. and obviously there are important key like female artists in, in this connection. And, and some of them you might not even sort of say, well, this is a rock artist. But if you think about, you know, Joan Armour trading, if mm-hmm. you think about uh, Nona Hendrix with LaBelle, even Betty Davis is is quite kind of rock. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, the you know, the late Tina Turner, I mean, was was a lot of things, but one of them was she was a rock star, right? So I just wonder if you had any thoughts on on sort of female black rock per se, if it if it's fair to ask that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one thing I, I can't, I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out. There's an incredible book, just to tell your audiences, called Black Diamond Queens by Maureen Mann, M-A-H-O-N, and it's all right. about black rock women and Tina right. Turner's in there Laverne Baker's in there and yeah there's a chapter on LaBelle and just reminding us that when LaBelle set out they wanted to be a rock band like that was yeah. the goal yeah, and exactly. audiences didn't know what to do with that and no. so you know they and didn't of course get Tracy that. Chapman Tracy Chapman who, who who returned at the Grammys the other day and this is just mm-hmm. absolutely I, I found it just jaw-dropping performance of mm-hmm. Fast Car with with this with the country singer Luke Combs it was uh, for me I have to say really moving 
really moving because I think it's one of the most moving songs ever written. And to see this like white country guy just sort of staring, like, you know, watching her every, just the, the reverence. I don't know. I find a very moving moment mm-hmm. and she's, she was an extraordinary and is an extraordinary singer songwriter, I think. And, and sort of comes into this discussion. Well, look, I mean, I'd love to, we don't have time, but I would, we'll have to have you back on when you have, my understanding is you're writing a book called The Untold History of American Rock Criticism. Is that, am I right? That well, is fascinating. Correct. Yeah. We really look forward to that. We'll have you back on when we get, when that comes out. <laughs> and that's also that published by Bloomsbury Academic, correct? And yes. you're looking at, you're looking at, okay, well, just briefly give us, give us yeah. a kind of sneak preview. Yeah. Just, just, just basically looking at, you know, it's a book that's just, you know, taking, you know, looking at all of the people who aren't straight white men, basically, and, <laughs> and moving, moving those writers who have, you know, we all talk about them. We all know them. They're all wonderful, but kind of moving them to the margins and, and bringing in mm. some new voices. And, you know, because there are women and folks of color and queer writers who were doing, you know, this work in the 60s and 70s. And many of those voices have just been muted. And, you know, and some of it has to do with the publications. You know, there are black writers and other writers of color who are writing for Cream and, you know, and Rolling Stone and other places. Uh, and they've been forgotten. But a lot of it also is the publications, you know, like in much the same ways that rock was a canon was formed around rock and what is legitimate rock. It mm-hmm. was the same thing with what's a legitimate rock publication, you know. And so I'm looking at different kinds of publications as well. I'm looking at black and brown newspapers. I'm looking at regional weeklies that aren't New York necessarily. It's not necessarily all. I'm looking at the Village Voice too, but also moving away, looking at Cleveland, for instance, looking at someone like Jane Scott, who wrote The Dealer in Cleveland, you know, and folks like that. This is music to our ears. It really is. It's something we, we, I mean, um, albeit we are straight white men. Sorry about that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) totally fine uh, it's okay <laughs> um thank you um but we this is this it's very very key to our kind of mission and I mean, we're trying to incorporate so many different voices yeah, on yeah. what's back pages, I, mean, so. I, I i go i've been going on about it a lot on mm. this podcast is that for me one of the great discoveries is the the women who wrote about pop music in the 60s, who were sort of shoved to one side when Crawdaddy and Rolling Stone sort of emerged. But they were fantastic writers. I mean, so many of them. And, you know, my great heroine is Maureen Cleaver, who wrote for the Evening Standard, who was the woman who got the quotes about John Lennon from John Lennon about the Beatles being bigger than Jesus. I mean, she's just an outstanding interviewer. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, 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 it's something that we've... It's a big thing for us here. Rock really looking pages. forward to the book. Yeah, will you, will you will you let us know? Keep us in the oh, loop, Kim, because it would be a really really fascinating thing for us to talk to talk to you about. We are sort of coming to the end of the episode, and at this point, we do need to talk. We haven't recorded a new episode for a month for various reasons. We pre-recorded the Tom Hibbert issue, so quite a, a number of notable figures have passed away in that time, and we we are going to talk about a couple of them um but obviously we you know we we 
Toby Keith, the country singer, went Henry Farnborough of the Spinners, um, the sometimes Detroit Spinners, but Spinners as we know them. Fantastic piece that jo- Jim Farber alerted to. He was actually one of the last people to interview Henry Farnborough about the Spinners and Tom Bell and the Philly sound. We've added that piece uh, to RBP. The DJ Steve Wright, who won't be known to many American listeners, but was a mainstay, a staple of uh, BBC pop radio, both on Radio 1 and 2, who just died uh, yesterday. But we've also, notably, we've lost the MC5's Wayne Kramer and the can singer Damo Suzuki. So just we'll just briefly talk about them. And we've added, um, we've made uh, pieces freely available on, on the homepage just in, in tribute to these. We've also lost one of our key writers, really, Neil Kulkarni, who died about three weeks ago. And we did pay tribute to him on, on the RBP homepage. Mark, could you just tell us a little bit about, about Neil? Because you, you knew him and you knew many well, who well, loved Well, him. I, I, I never actually met him personally. We became great Facebook friends. He was an electrifyingly good writer in the late, sort of late 90s uh, melody maker. He got his gigs. He wrote a, a, a letter demanding that the melody makers start covering more black music, to, essentially. And it was such a good letter that Cathy Unsworth, the letters editor at uh, Melody Maker, basically said to her, one of her, Steve Chick, I believe, you know, sign this guy up. We need, we need him writing for the paper. His interview with Public Enemy is great. Chuck D paid tribute to uh, Neil uh, on the artist formerly known as Twitter um, just shortly after his death. I mean, for Chuck D to actually kind of, you know, pay tribute to a journalist is pretty, is, is something. And he, he's just, just a fantastic, electrifyingly good writer who sort of refused to succumb to the leers of Britpop and, in fact, was, you know, and an, an, he was an angry writer in the best sort of, best sense of the word. Very sad, died far too young. His partner had died um, in 2018, so he's now left two daughters without parents, which is tragic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, uh, I got to know him on Facebook, and it's one of those people who you actually you suddenly think, you know, this guy's a friend of mine, even though I've never actually been in the same room as him. And when he died, the explosion of grief from his, not just his colleagues but readers and so on and so forth was something that I haven't really seen before, and he'll be much missed. And talking of books, as we were just a moment ago, there is a possibility of a collection of Neil's yeah, writing, isn't there? Yeah, there, there is going to be a collection. He, he also did a marvellous book, which is The Periodic Table of Hip-Hop. That's which right, was, of course. Was, it was really good. Um, uh, no, I mean, and also that when he, when the writing gigs dried up, as they have for so many music writers, he got back into doing things like teaching and so on and so forth. He had a life after the life of a professional music journalist, but he never stopped writing about it. And uh, he's marvellous. He was a wonderful writer, you know, yeah. that, that his his evisceration of stuff that he thought was shit was just <laughs> peerless, <laughs> second to none. That, that single review of a Shed 7 single where he just describes bumping into the singer in a bar and the, the, the singer just smelt of piss. That's basically the reviews. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> very good. Um, well, thank, thanks very much for that, Mark. Um, yeah. So I think we were all taken aback when Wayne Kramer died the other day. I, I thought I had no idea that he was so ill. And in fact, we were expecting a new album by him, I think, uh, sometime quite soon. So, so the MC5, there's no getting away from the MC5. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Important band to me. I mean, I loved the, the first two records and yeah. quite liked High Time. Um, did they mean anything to you as as a, as a white, as a high energy Detroit white rock band, political rock band, Kimberly? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I um, how do I put this? Yeah, I mean, of course, the 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 energy and there being, you know, just like a really important early you know, uh, kind of, uh, uh, inspirational figure for punk and all that was to come. Um, yeah, they're meaningful for me in that, in that perspective. And, and then also just being from Detroit, you know, I'm not from Detroit, but I actually, um, lived near Detroit. My last job, I'm now at Illinois, but, um, my last job was in Toledo and I spent a lot of time going back and forth to Detroit and also just cream magazine, which, it yeah. was one of those magazines that meant a whole lot to me. And, you know, I had the chance to talk to Dave Marsh uh, for my book. And so, you know, the Detroit connection and, you know, just their, you know, impact on um, punk rock and all of that. Is yes. For me. A key proto-punk band, really. I mean, without whom. I also think he's an absolutely fantastic guitar player. It's sort of slightly overlooked when people talk about him, yes. but just as a guitar player. And again, his influences were people like Ornette Coleman and so on and so forth. And in some ways, he and Vernon have sort of parallels, you, you know, um, that the, 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 the MC5 white rock band, but absolutely imbued with the idea of free jazz and free playing and all of that. And uh, a fabulous guitar player. Martin, did the MC5 mean anything to you? No. <laughs> Not really. I, I, I thought. I, I think thought I had to kick out, the, kick out the jams <laughs> as a forty-five, and I don't know where I got it from. So. I actually shoplifted an import copy of Back in the USA. I'm rather ashamed to admit, but it was at that time like this sort of Holy Grail album that you sort of had to have. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you were into the Stooges and things like that, but you could never find Back in the USA anywhere. And then I found myself in a store on the top on the Charing Cross Road, and there it was, shrink wrapped, sort of cut out <laughs> import copy. And I, I'm afraid I. I tucked it under my greatcoat and walked out. May God forgive today. me. Kick Out the Jams <laughs> is, is terrific. It's by far their best album. Mostly recorded live at the Grandy Ballroom in Detroit. I think it's terrific. Think it's it's really very record. exciting record, yeah. is it not? Is it not? Yeah, <laughs> pretty thrilling. Right now, right now, right now it's time to... Kick Out the Jams, motherfucker! Sort of less obviously sort of exciting, slightly more cerebral and very, very distinctive and original, obviously, were can. Yeah. Uh, the second the second singer for whom was the extraordinary Damo Suzuki. He was with them between, what, 71 and 73? I mean, not that long, but so they're probably their greatest records yeah. or, or two or three of their greatest yeah, records, yeah. Tega Mako. Jasper, I mean, as, as someone who is half German, if you don't mind me asking <laughs> you, um, do you mind me asking what, what I, I know we've talked about Cannes on the podcast before, mm. but just, just, just briefly your thoughts on Damo. Damo, I think is such an interesting, obviously he's not German, he's Japanese, yeah. but I think that the, the moment that he joins that band, they do become something really exciting and really different because his whole style is very free, very improvised, very in the moment and blends language and 
utterance and all sorts of things mm. in a very unique way. I love that. So we've, we're featuring this piece uh, that Mike Barnes wrote for The Wire in, in 2004, Damo Suzuki, The Accidental Anarchist. The moment when Suzuki joined Can has become legendary. The group's original singer Malcolm Mooney had quit in late 69, and in May 70, the group were about to commence a residency at a Munich club called The Blow Up. The loss of their vocalists had put the brakes on the group's creativity, and they were on the lookout for a similarly inspiring, catalytic replacement. On the afternoon of the concert, bassist Holger Tsukai chanced upon Suzuki in the street, basking his improvised music, and invited him to appear with the group that evening. <laughs> According to Tsukai, after a concentrated start, Suzuki Suzuki's fierce vocal outbursts prompted a fight and a walkout, leaving only about 60 diehard fans to see out the show. It was beautiful. A very good concert, Zhukai concluded. (laughs) For me, that just sort of sums it up as a whole. It's like, you know, it caused a fight and a walkout, and they loved that. You know, that was a a very good concert. (laughs) He was their man. Yeah, (laughs) interestingly, that Malcolm Mooney, the the previous singer, was a black American singing with a what we now term a kraut rock band it is term which we don't really like to use so we talk about black rock that's a fairly early example very interesting yeah 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 but i think i think damo suzuki was just someone who was in the moment all the all the time in that sense and yeah, and, yeah. and and this is a great piece where he's he's interviewed as well and reveals stuff like that he mostly listens to classical music at the time of the interview which is like a really odd revelation but it helps him it helps him you know not get distracted when he's trying to be in the moment it's it's, it's interesting to see mm. I, I just it's, he's a he's a, a a great character was a great character is it? yeah definitely Real martin if i ask you the same question about can <laughs> That I asked no. about MC5. <laughs> Am I going to get the same answer? No, I had a friend at school who, who was just he was Can Faust. I'm trying to remember the other the other bands, but no, he would play Tago Mago to me a lot. So I, I actually got, grew to really like Can. I mean, it was it was absolutely different from anything else that that I liked or had listened to. So. <laughs> and still is, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's they just are extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, I just was listening to Vitamin C a couple of hours before the podcast, and it just, they had this sort of, I mean, they were kind of capable of being incredibly funky, really, weren't yeah. they? But it's not, it's not the JBs, but no. it's still very funky. <laughs> um, yeah. I, have you ever listened to Can Kim? Not, not really. Maybe not. No. Okay. I mean, I'm aware, okay. I would I'm recommend aware of the band, it. but... Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fascinating group. Tago really. Mogo. Listen to Tago Mogo. Really yeah. good record. Yeah, I quite like Future Days. Future, future Days is fantastic. After Damo had gone. Can you tell us about any uh, notable pieces you've added this week? And as I said earlier, Kim, if you hear anything that makes you want to contribute a thought or a memory or an anecdote, just jump in. Mark. Yeah, well, um, very briefly, um, Disco Music Echo, uncredited review of David Bowie's first album in 1967, says a remarkable creative debut by a 19-year-old Londoner who wrote all 14 tracks and sings them with a sufficiently fresh interpretation to make quite a noise on the scene if he gets the breaks and right angles. Well, it took him a few years, but they were they were on something there. <laughs> Bill Withers, interviewed by Mike Oban for the Washington, D.C. Evening Star, 
1972. Uh, as always, Bill Withers is really interesting and articulate man. And he says, I feel like this is a big bonus in my life. Nobody deserves anything they get from entertaining. I was only in music for six months last year. I earned more money for entertaining in that small period of time than I earned in nine years in the Navy. That's a little unfair. Doesn't mean to say I'm going to give any of it back, but the value, stru- <laughs> but the value structures are upside down, which is a pretty cool, pretty cool thing to say. Porter Wagoner, bitter, bitter Porter Wagoner, by John Northland, uh, Country Music, 1978. Of course, Dolly Parton was his protege, <laughs> and he never quite got over her, her leaving. Um, so I will I'm always the- love you, she said, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, so I'm the kind of person that I'll listen to ideas of Dolly's if she's working with me. I, I feel they're good, I'll use them. But there has to be someone who says yes and no. I was that person. I think that was part of the reason what... Part of that was the part that she's talking about being trapped, but I feel like that trap was pretty nice to her. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. We've also got really good interviews. This, this is from last week Jackson Brown by Paul Nelson's very good interview. Johnny Cash, Sylvia Patterson. That's pretty much my lot. Oh, uh, Alice Cooper, oh, this is great. Alice Cooper interviewed by Ed McCormack, Rolling Stone, 1975. I have to laugh when I pick up a magazine and there's John Denver telling an interviewer, I'll still be around when guys like Alice Cooper and David Bowie are long forgotten. (laughs) That asshole. I never could stand his sappy ecology songs. But if someone asked me first, I'd probably have said, but if someone had asked me first, I'd probably said, oh, yeah, John Denver, a great, great star. You know me, Mr. Nice Guy. Seriously, though, though, where does that pompous creep come off bad-mouthing me like that when he's never even met me and probably hasn't even seen my act? I read something like that and I think, oh, yeah? Well, just for that, I'm going to stick around in this business just long enough to piss on John Denver's flowers. No more Mr. Nice Guy. (laughs) Essentially. That's my my luck. Jasper. I've got just a couple of things to mention, the first of which is a really interesting piece, and it sort of ties in to an extent with what we've been talking about when it comes to black rock, which is a, a piece Frank Owen wrote for Playboy, which is the last days of Jam Master Jay in December 2003, and it's, and it's a really mm-hmm. lengthy examination of what went down, you know, um, or what people at the time thought might have gone down, because it's still sort of somewhat an unsolved mystery. It's been in the news again recently because Uriel Tony Rincon has just given new evidence just like last week or a couple of weeks ago and it's a it's just i mean if if you have any interest in that sort of story and if you want to explore it it's a very very well written investigation into into that you know meanwhile in hollis theories continue to swirl whoever killed jay ain't no stranger says shake it's someone from around the way it had to be someone he trusted for the gunmen to get up that close on him there were powder marks on his shirt. So it's really, it's, you mm. know, it, it just goes into, into incredible detail about that. And it concludes, in the end, Jay's loyalties probably brought him down. His attempt to straddle two worlds became untenable. He played a game he could not win with men he should not have trusted. The most startling realization, according to his friends, may not be that he got killed, but that he managed to stay alive so long. Yeah. So it's it's a really striking, wow. you know, really striking piece. Fr- Frank Owen's a, a first-class investigative journalist who should be doing more of that sort of stuff. He also wrote a lot about the New York club scene and, and getting into like the areas where the club scene and criminality intersected. Very, very good journalist. Mm. Well, I can jump in and say that Run DMC was another really important group for me. Yeah, like, yeah. Re- really important, in part because... When I heard Rockbox, yes. yeah. and I heard, 
you know, Eddie Martinez's guitar infused with, you know, hip hop and a, and a, and a, and a, you know, an MC rapping. I, I, I just, I was, I was amazed and I was yeah, really yeah. excited. Mm. I was excited by the possibilities. Absolutely. And I was knocked out by Walk This Way, the, 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 yeah. the mm-hmm. thing they did with Aerosmith, which mm-hmm. is so much better than the Aerosmith original. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. So mm-hmm. true. So, so true. <laughs> And the last thing I'll mention, just uh, we're recording this on Valentine's Day, so this feels sort of amusingly appropriate. The story of Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive, Steve Pafford writing in October 2023, so last year. And it's, it's, a, it's again, it's an, a nice long piece exploring how that record was made and the context of it, which was that Polydor wanted, you know, Gloria Gaynor's career was kind of, was kind of failing somewhat and Polydor wanted to, wanted to revive it. And Polydor's new English president, Freddie Hayne, had specifically ordered the song Substitute as the vehicle to revive her fortunes and her relationship with the label and released mm-hmm. it as the A-side as planned. But everybody involved in the recording knew that I Will Survive was a superior track. So Gloria Gaynor and, uh, and her husband go down, took the A&R man from the label to show that people would like it. They took him down to Studio 54 and Richie played it and the audience immediately loved it. And the quote, the quote from Gloria in this piece is, the audience immediately loved it, and you know New York audiences don't immediately love anything. So <laughs> I just thought that was good. I mean, what a what a classic record as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, guys, for that. That does bring us to the end of what's been a great episode. It's been really wonderful talking with you, Kim. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. Do rush out and buy uh, Kim's book, Living Colours, Time's Up, in the uh, Bloomsbury Academic 33 and a Third series and do follow this podcast on whatever platforms you use do review it uh, if you feel so inclined um, also check out rocks back pages itself where you can <laughs> read almost fifty-five thousand interviews and reviews with everyone from you know elvis to radiohead and beyond if your library does not subscribe your local library either in your institution or your public library doesn't please Uh, suggest they take a free trial um, of the world's largest archive of music journalism and we will be back in a fortnight with alan light former rolling stone contributor and editor of vibe white editor of vibe there's a (laughs) there's a there's a whole discussion um anyway (laughs) we'll look forward to that um and i think have i forgotten anything guys probably Probably forgotten my my own name, but um, <laughs> again, just thank you so much, Kim. And um, at this point, we will all say good. goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you. At first, I was afraid. I was petrified. Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong, and I grew strong, and I learned how. That concludes episode 171 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to a special guest, Kimberly Mack. Her 33 and a third book on living colours, Time's Up, is published by Bloomsbury and available now. For more about Kimberly's work, visit her website at KimberlyMack.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. 
The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Yeah.